Amen. Good morning, everybody. It is good to see you all this morning. Like Corey said, my name is Andrew. And uh, yeah, we're going to be back in the book of Acts this week. It's week four of our series in the book of Acts. Now, last week, if you were with us, we went through a ton of verses. We went through like 41 verses. Today, it's going to be a lot smaller. It's just going to be about six verses, all right? So we're going to zoom in to this part. It's Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47. And if you're new with us, uh, we have this thing called a follow-along. Uh, there's a QR code on the Next Steps card. Feel free to scan that. It'll take you to our follow-along. It'll have all the verses and um, <clears throat> all the points and stuff for today. But today in our conversation, we're going to be looking at the topic of the church. Now, when I say the word church, what comes into your mind? What do you think about? Maybe you get a positive image of the church. Maybe when I say the word church, you get a negative image. You know, everybody has an opinion or a thought or an assumption about what the word church is or what a a church should be or what church people should do or look like or or whatever. And today we're going to be looking in Acts chapter 2 at a summary paragraph that basically summarizes what the early church looked like. Like when I say early church, I mean like right after the time Jesus rose from the grave, ascended into heaven. It's like the first church. And we're going to look at what they were doing, what they looked like, and try to figure out, okay, what were they doing that we should be doing now? So we're not going to be thinking about, when I say church, maybe uh, different thoughts about what church should look like, style, format, different things like that. There's all sorts of things that we could talk about. A lot of things about church has changed over the years. I mean, the first church was 2,000 years ago on the other side of the planet. They spoke a different language. And so their church looked different naturally than what ours is going to look like. At the same time, there are things that they did that we should be doing now. And if Jesus doesn't come back, the church should be doing 2,000 years from now as well. And so that's what we're going to be looking at today. Those truths of what should the church, in order for the church to be the church, when it first started, for now, and until Jesus returns, what sort of things should we be doing? Now, if you've been a Jesus follower for a while or you've been here at GFC for a while, some of the things I'm going to talk about probably aren't going to be like super mind-blowing or like, wow, I've never thought about that. Now, if you are new to following Jesus or new to GFC, maybe these things are new to you and that's totally fine. But today, as we talk about these things, uh, I don't want us to miss out on them just because maybe you've heard them before. Because the reality is important things are worth repeating, right? How easy is it for us to forget important things? Have you ever forgotten someone's birthday? Have you ever forgotten your spouse's, like, your anniversary? Don't point. If, if your husband or wife has ever done that, don't point. Don't point. All right? Have you ever forgotten something at work? You know, for, for forgotten something in a relationship with a friend or something? Yeah, we forget important things. And sometimes we forget important things about what it means to follow Jesus. And I have two, <clears throat> two goals for us today. The first is that I want to refill our vision tanks for the church. Now, I believe all of us, we have a vision tank, all right? And when I say vision tank, I'm not talking about your eyes, like vision like that. I'm talking about having a vision for something, you know? Uh, people cast vision for things. They, they kind of put out, this is our mission, this is our goal, this is where we're heading. And they get this vision of what something should be, what something should look like. But I've heard it said that vision leaks, over time, we get cast a vision for something, maybe in your job, or um, I really like baseball. It's spring training time right now, and in spring training, all the teams, their coaches are casting vision for, we can win the World Series. But what happens over time, whether it's for work or whether it's for a hobby or something, that vision can leak. 
Life happens. You get, you get busy. You, you, you fight with your spouse. You have an argument with your kids. Something happens. And that vision for something that was really grand and beautiful and amazing, it just kind of starts to get, uh, it's not as important anymore because life kicks in. So it's good for us to refill our vision tank for what the church should be and could be so that we don't miss out on what God has for us as a body of believers. Second thing is, I want us to evaluate our beliefs versus our practices regarding the church. Because again, like I said, today, a lot of things I'm going to talk about, things we're going to see in Acts 2, I think for most of us, if you're a Jesus follower, you probably won't be like, I disagree with that. Like, you probably won't do that. But how easy is it for us, and I'm talking for myself too, how easy is it for us as Jesus followers to like say, oh yeah, I get it here, but then in our day-to-day practice, our, our, life just, they, our lives just don't align. And so we need to think about, is my, my beliefs, are they lining up with my daily practice, with what I, I say I believe this, and then am I actually living it out? And so that's what I want us to think about. And before I jump into it, like, there's no perfect church. We're a group of broken, sinful people who need the grace of Jesus, all right? And so this vision for the church, this idea of living it out together, until Jesus returns, we're going we're gonna to mess up at times. We're going to fail. And, and the, the good thing is our God didn't die for us because we were perfect. He died for us because he was perfect and he knew that he needed to be a sacrifice for us. And he gave us that love and forgiveness. So we can enter into this conversation knowing, you know what? We're going to struggle. We're not going to be a perfect church, but we could become more and more of the church that Jesus wants us to be. Does that make sense? All right, let's dive in. Acts chapter before we get there, though, quick background, quick background. Uh, if you're new to our conversation, we're in the, like we've said, the book of Acts is written by a guy named Luke. He was a doctor. He already wrote a book of, uh, of the New Testament called the book of Luke. And that is where Luke looks at the life of Jesus. Now he's looking at the life of the early church in the book of Acts. And in Acts chapter one, we see Jesus's ascension. All right. He's still there on the scene. He spends about 40 days with his disciples. Um, I wish there was more to Acts chapter 1 where we had more of what Jesus shared with them during that time. How amazing would that be? It just skims over it really quick. Like, oh, he was there. And then he ascends. Um, but there's about 120-ish followers. And then in Acts 2, God's, uh, the disciples, they were waiting for the Holy Spirit to come. And the Holy Spirit comes, comes upon them and in them. And Peter preaches this amazing sermon where God gives them through the power of the Holy Spirit the ability to speak in different languages to the people around them. And in Jerusalem at that time, people from all these different places were gathering. And so this miraculous thing happens and 3,000 some people are saved. And so that's where we're at. The church is vibrant. It's beautiful. It's amazing. It's new. It's still pretty small. But God is doing some amazing things. And now we're just going to get six-ish verses of what were they doing? What were they doing. So here we go. Acts chapter 2 verses 42 to 47. Let's read it together. It says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. And everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and, and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. And every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts and they broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. All right, so we're just going to walk through this verse, through this passage and pull out some things about the early church. The first thing is they devoted themselves. 
That's the way Luke decides to describe the early church. They were a devoted group of people. They weren't lazy. They weren't just, you know, present. They were devoted. And this word devoted, you know, think of they were committed. They were sincere. They were passionate. They, they met with purpose. All right. Now, there's a difference between being present and being devoted, right? All of us at some point have been at school, like we've, we grew up, went to school, or in school now. You can know which kids in school are devoted to learning and which ones are just present in the classroom, right? Maybe you were the one who was devoted to learning, or maybe you were the one who was just kind of there, all right? Like, there, we understand those people who are devoted because we see them putting in the work. We see them listening to the teacher. We see them asking the questions. Or have you ever asked someone, hey, how's work going? And they're just like, you know what? It's just a job. What do they mean by that? They mean it's just something they go to. They, they collect a paycheck. It, it keeps them busy. And yeah, they're devoted kind of just because they, they need the paycheck, but they're not really committed. They're not there for the long haul. They don't really want to be there. It's not something that gives them this passion and, and purpose. It's just, it's just a job, you know? The early church, they weren't just present. They weren't just, you know what? It's our church. Or you know what? It's our religious thing we do. No, they were devoted. All right? They were devoted. Now, there are four things that they were devoted to, and we're going to look at each of them. All right? The first one is this. They were devoted. They were committed to the apostles' teachings. Now, the apostles were, were the, the 12 followers of Jesus that were, uh, had been around with Jesus. They'd been there for the long haul. They had seen him die and resurrect. Jesus had taught them. And so they were devoted to their teaching because they wanted to keep um, leaning in and processing what does it look like to follow after Jesus. Now for us, um, we don't just have the apostles teaching like by word, we have the whole New Testament. And this also includes the Old Testament where the apostles, they would have pointed back to the Old Testament and how the Old Testament had predicted and pointed toward the coming of Jesus. And so they basically we could say they were devoted to the truth of God's word. They were devoted to that. Now, think about this. Like, again, this isn't a totally brand new thing for us as Jesus followers. But think about this. Um, they had just witnessed a guy rise from the dead. Like, they had just, well, first they'd witnessed him die, and then they'd seen him come back to life. All of them had then witnessed this amazing sermon Peter had preached where the Holy Spirit had come upon them. And if you read in Acts 2, there's this physical manifestation of the Holy Spirit as like tongues of fire above their heads, which just would have been amazing to see. And they're seeing all these miraculous things. How easy would it have been for the early church to say, you know what? We're good. We saw Jesus raised from the dead. We've, we've witnessed the Holy Spirit like very tangibly. They could have just sat back and said, you know what? We're good. We're convinced. We don't need any more truth because we got enough. They easily could have done that. But instead, they had this good, unsatisfied desire to say, you know what? We need to keep leaning in. Yeah, we saw Jesus rise from the dead. Now we need to understand what he said. Yeah, the Holy Spirit has come, but now we need to learn to live and follow the leading of the Spirit in our lives. Sometimes it can be easy, I think, for us as Jesus followers to maybe sometimes think, you know what? My truth tank is filled. I got the basics of the gospel. I'm good. And I've been in seasons in my life where I can just be like, you know what? I just, 
I've, I've been learning, I've been, I've been studying, and I'm not sure how I apply all this. And like, I get it, there's seasons of maybe dryness or different things. But it's not good for us as Jesus followers to just assume that we, we know it all. If the early church, if the apostles who lived with Jesus needed to lean into each other, needed to lean in and be reminded of the truth of who Jesus was and what it means to follow him, 2,000 years removed from that, how much more do we need that? And so I wonder if we have the same type of devotion the early church had to the truth of God's word. I wonder that about us as a church, but also about us as individuals. And again, I get it, there's seasons where, where we might fluctuate and, and with our desire for the truth of God's word, but do we, how, how are we doing? Are we just saying, you know what, I'm good, I understand the gospel, I don't need challenge anymore. Are we willing to lean in and say, you know what, I need God's word in my life. So that was the first thing they were devoted to, to God's word, to the teaching of the apostles. Now before we move to the next thing they were devoted to, in verse 42, it talks about the apostles' teaching, but the apostles, that word comes up in verse 43. In verse 43, it says, everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. I want to quick just highlight this verse for us for a second before we look at the second thing the early church was devoted to. You know, it says that the apostles, they're doing all these amazing signs and wonders. And basically what Luke is saying is that God was doing miracles through them. This similar language was applied to Jesus earlier in Acts 2. In Acts 22, it says how Jesus did miracles and how he performed signs and wonders. And so God is doing some miraculous things through the apostles, all right? In the early church, there's some amazing things happening. And actually, as we move into the book of Acts, again, this is kind of a summary paragraph. In the next couple of chapters, we'll see some of those amazing things the apostles were doing, things that God was doing through them. Now, my question for us is... Um, what of this summary of the early church, what parts of it are descriptive and what parts are prescriptive? Now, what I mean by that is what parts of this are simply describing what happened and what parts are a prescription for us, 2,000 years removed, where Luke is saying, hey, the early church did this, you should do this as well. Are some of these things just for, like Luke's just recording what happened, or is he saying this is what should be happening for us still today? I believe that being devoted to the apostles' teaching, to the truth of God's word, is something prescriptive, something we should be doing just like they were doing. And that comes up not just here, but throughout the New Testament. But this idea of how the apostles were performing signs and wonders, how God was doing miraculous things to them, is that prescriptive for us? Basically, should we be devoted to the fact that, hey, every time we come to church, we should see a miracle? Or maybe not every time, but every once in a while. Like, Pastor Coy should stand up and do something miraculous in front of all of us. Like, is that what they're saying? Now, I don't, before, before I answer that, I want you to hear this. I don't believe God has stopped doing miracles today. I believe, believe miracles are still happening. And I believe that God is doing amazing things around our world. And there's a book I want to point you guys to. If you're struggling maybe with, like, does God do perform miracles? Does so amazing things happen? There's a book by, written by a guy named Craig Keener called Miracles Today. This is his small version of his study. He has a two-part volume that's about 1,200 pages where he studies this topic of miracles and he brings in miracles from all over the world. 
He does it by continent. He does it by types of miracles. He does it by ones caught on video, ones that have doctor's stamp of approval. Like he brings it in and he brings in all the evidence. It's super encouraging to read like, wow, this is his smaller version. All right. But it's still, it's got so much in it. And I encourage you, if this is something you're, you're wondering about, I encourage you to pick it up and read it. But I believe that miraculous things, God is still doing them today. I think there might be reasons why we don't see them as much here in our context. Craig Keener in his book talks about some of those things. But I don't think that performing signs and wonders is prescriptive for our church. God doesn't call us to be devoted to the miraculous signs. He calls us to be devoted to his truth. He calls us to follow him even if he doesn't show up and do the amazing thing we want him to. Because here's the thing. He's already done the most amazing thing which is he created you and then he became a person like you and then he died on the cross for you and then he rose again for you so that you could have eternal life with him. There's literally nothing more amazing he could do for you than that. And so he's already done the miraculous and now he calls us to live by faith regardless of what he does here in our present lives, even though I still 100% believe he can and does choose to do those things at times. In fact, Craig Keener, in his book, one of the things he brings up, he says, you know what, maybe why here in our American context at certain times we don't see it as much, these miraculous signs and wonders, is because the gospel is already here. Think about this. In the early church, the gospel was just getting preached for the first time. The church was just getting established. And there was, <clears throat> God mercifully and graciously gave them this extra boost of these miraculous signs to help validate what the apostles were teaching. Craig Keener in his book brings up how around the world where missionaries are moving in for the first time into different places where the gospel has literally never been preached, there's reports and stories of God doing amazing things, miraculous things before people's eyes. But again, it's to help set the gospel and to give it a firm foundation. That's exactly what was happening 2,000 years ago. And so, just something I want us to think about. When you're reading God's word, a good question is, is this descriptive or prescriptive? Is this the author simply recording what happened? Or is there a truth here for us that was true then, that is true now? And I believe being devoted to the apostles' teaching is true for us, regardless of the miraculous signs and wonders God chooses to do. All right? Let's go to the second thing. Let's go to the second thing. All right, let's go back to Acts 2. So they were devoted, they were committed to the apostles' teaching, and now they're devoted and committed and on mission for and, and being purposeful towards this idea of fellowship. Fellowship is kind of a churchy word, right? Like where in society do we hear that word? Not many places, right? Like, I, like growing up in school, I don't remember any of my friends saying, hey, you want to come over and have fellowship? Or, hey, let's go down to the baseball field. Let's practice, have some fellowship together. Like that's weird, but people say, hey, you want to come over and hang out? Hey, you want to go spend some time you know, playing catch or being together or, or meeting up or grabbing coffee or doing those sorts of things? Like, We don't use the word fellowship much unless we're in this uh, church context. The only place I could really think of was when you're talking about probably the greatest book besides the Bible of all time, The Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Ring, all right? Like, that's where you use it, all right? I'm super nerdy, but it's awesome. All right, so fellowship. This word... In Greek is the word koinonia. And koinonia has this sense of, again, not just being present, not just sitting down together and talking, but it has this identity. Koinonia has a sense of 
I'm contributing with you. I'm serving with you. I'm sharing with you. We're participating together. It's a fellowship of contributors, not just consumers. All right? And so they were devoted to this koinonia, to this fellowship, this active fellowship together. And it led to very practical acts of love and care. And we see this in the rest of the passage. In verses 44 and 45, it says this, All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. So we see this commitment to being together, but then also to sacrificing for one another. Now, sometimes people have read this throughout the years and they hear, they kind of get a little freaked out, all right? Because they hear, wow, the church, they had everything in common. They were selling all their stuff. There's no private property. (gasps) Is this communism? Like that's literally a thing that comes up when people talk about this passage. I don't think Luke is saying, or I don't think the Bible's teaching that to follow Jesus, you have to give up all your your private property and there's there's no more personality and you're just communist. Like, no. If that was the case, the whole idea of stealing being a sin wouldn't need to be a thing anymore. In fact, uh, in in 2 Timothy chapter 4, the apostle Paul talks about his own private cloak. He's talking to Timothy and it's just this this interesting little verse where he's like, hey, Timothy, when you come visit me, bring my cloak. Apparently he left his cloak with Timothy and he wanted it back. And this verse, it says they sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. What this verse is teaching is that the early church, they were aware of the needs around them. And they were willing to sacrificially and generously give up what they had to bless somebody else. It was koinonia. It was active contributors. It was love. And that's the type of fellowship they had. They were devoted to that. Also, we see in verse 46, the type of fellowship they had. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts and they broke bread in their homes and they ate together. We see two different places they met. One, they met together in the temple courts. This is the temple in Jerusalem, was this, this huge complex. There's like the temple building and then there's the outer courts and then there's the temple mount, which is, it's literally football fields big. Like it's massive. It's this huge public gathering place. And they didn't have church buildings. You know, the church has just formed. They kept going back to the place of worship that their people, that the Jewish people have been going to for forever, all right? So that's where they were going. They kept going back there, worshiping God together, meeting together, so they, we see them actively meeting together publicly. But then we also see that they're spending time together in each other's homes. And so there's this sense of they were committed to koinonia together, not just being present publicly. They were committed to that, but then also privately just spending time together. They had fellowship with one another. Um, I love this. I have a uh, quote I want to share with you as I was reading, studying this week, it's describing this fellowship and it said, Christianity is personal, but not individualistic. Think about that. Christianity is personal. You enter into a real personal relationship with the living God of the universe. But it's not a relationship into, well, I can just do this Jesus thing by myself. Just me and Jesus. On one sense, that's true. You and Jesus, it's personal. But on the other sense, what are you saved into? You're saved into a life following God. And what is the example he's shown us? To live in community with other believers. To reach out to the lost. Following Jesus cannot be an individualistic thing. 
Even though, I'll be honest with you, for me, sometimes I want it to be. Because it's easier if it's individualistic. Especially as a modern American where I like my conveniences. I like to get things when I want them. You know, when I want something to eat, I, I DoorDash it and I can get it really quick. When I want to buy something, I go to Amazon and I get it super quick. And I get mad if it's like 24 hours delayed. You know, and I make life all about me. I can buy anything with, with any logo on it that I want, with my name on anything I want. I'd like When you go to purchase something on Amazon, it's amazing how there's like 20 bazillion things of the one thing you're looking for, and then you waste all your time trying to figure out which one is the best one, and you just go with the first one that you looked at anyway. Like it's, we are so individualistic inundated. And on one hand, that's not, there's nothing inherently evil about that. But the temptation is to then make our faith just individualistic instead of only personal. It's meant to be personal, but then our life together is meant to be communal. And that's hard because let's be real. Dealing with each other can be hard, right? I know I can be hard to deal with. We all can be hard to deal with because we all have bad days. We all can annoy each other. We all have different personalities. Like that's just the way it is being in with people. People are hard. People are difficult. But this is where life together, this is what Jesus did for us. He died for us and now we're saved and we get to do this together. And so the early church, they were devoted to koinonia, to fellowship, and we need to be as well. All right, third one. Got to keep rolling. Third one is this. The early church, they were devoted to breaking of bread. Breaking of bread. All right, there are two things that this could be referring to. The first one is this could simply be referring to the fact that they were devoted to eating a meal together. Or basically, hey, the way they had fellowship, the way they had koinonia, one of those ways was to spend time eating together. And that makes sense. But I think there's a, a deeper meaning to this. Um, and I'm not, I'm not alone in that thinking. You know, we see that they were devoted to spending time together, eating together. We see that in verse 46. It says they broke bread in their homes and ate together. They had meals together. Eating together is a natural way to have fellowship together. Natural way to do that. But it's interesting that Luke in verse 46, he says they broke bread and they ate together. If breaking bread or they broke bread simply meant they ate together, Luke would be saying they ate in their homes and they ate together. That that would be weird, right? Like, why would he say that? I think what he's talking about is the fact that they were devoted to the communion of the bread and the cup or the Lord's Supper. And in fact, in Luke 22, again, same author as Acts, in the book of Luke, Luke 22, we have Jesus at the Last Supper with his disciples, the night before he's crucified. And if you're familiar with the story, he takes the bread and the cup of the Passover over meal, and he, he makes them symbolic. He makes them a memorial of what he's about to do the next day. And in Luke 22, he says that Jesus, he, he took the bread, um, he gave thanks for it, and he broke it. So this idea of breaking the bread became Luke's shorthanded way of saying the communion of bread and, and cup, the last, or the Lord's Supper, all right? And so the early church was devoted to this practice of remembering the Lord's Supper, of remembering what it stood for, which is the sacrifice of Jesus. And the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians, he talks about this. He processes through this, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. He says, for I received for the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. 
So here we have the bread. And if you're not familiar with communion or the Lord's Supper, this is a, a passage we go to whenever we celebrate the communion of the bread and the cup. And Paul, he, he brings up what Jesus says in Luke 22, how he took the bread and he broke it. The bread is meant to symbolize the breaking of Jesus' body on the cross. If you don't hear anything else today, please hear what these things stand for. The bread was this tangible, visible symbol of the horrible reality that the God of the universe became a person, a human being, took on flesh, and then his body broke for us. The holy God, the perfect God of the universe, broke for sinful, evil, broken people like me and you. Just imagine that. The God of the universe saw our need and then he stepped in out of love and said, you know what? They deserve this breaking, but I'm going to break for them instead. And the early church wanted to remember that because it was the center of their faith. They didn't want to forget it. The fact that, wow, God broke for us on the cross. And ultimately that breaking then points to the cup. It points to why he ultimately did it. He did it out of love. And he said, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. So the, his body breaks and his, his blood, which is the cup, it, it is poured out for us so that a new covenant could happen. Now the word covenant, that's another churchy word. We don't use that in many places. It's this idea of this like super deep, devoted, committed relationship. And throughout the whole Old Testament, God, that is what he's pursuing with people. He creates humanity so he could have relationship with them. Humanity breaks it. And then he sets out on a plan to restore it. And you go to Genesis chapter 12. God creates a covenant with Abraham. And then you go to the book of Exodus where God creates a covenant with the people of Israel. And there's, there's multiple covenants. But this is a new covenant, which is predicted and prophesied about in the, new, in the Old Testament. In Jeremiah 31. It's a new covenant because the old covenant, I know we're, we're bouncing back and forth using the word covenant a lot. It's a new covenant because the old covenant wasn't quite sufficient. It was good, but it wasn't sufficient for what God wanted. See, under the old covenant, the Israelites, they, they, they would sacrifice animals. They were living by the law, which was good because it pointed out their need for God. It was pointing forward to Jesus' sacrifice, but God wanted to go deeper. He wanted a relationship with them that was fully mended, that only he could fully mend. That was a relationship that was built on faith in what Jesus was going to do. And when Jesus died on the cross, he brought in this new covenant for us. Grace Family Church, this is why we gather. Because the God of the universe, his body broke, his blood was spilled so we could enter into relationship with him. If that didn't happen, there's no point for us being here. And that's why the early church came together. This is the thing that they were devoted to, the center of it all. They were devoted to what their Lord and Savior Jesus had done for them. And if you're here today and you don't know this God, the God who would be willing to put on flesh and die for you, you can walk away today knowing him. I would love to talk to you about that. Pastor Corey would, someone else would. Please don't leave today think not wrestling with this. And this is what the early church was devoted to to the truth of God's word, to fellowship, and to Jesus, their Lord and Savior. Let's go to the last one. Let's go to the last one. The early church was devoted to prayer. The early church was devoted to prayer. Prayer is that communication we have with God where we get to listen to him and talk to him. 
And prayer really helps us process our dependence. It helps us wrestle with, am I dependent on me or am I dependent on God? Just think about your life. What does your life say when it comes to dependence? Who are you most dependent and reliant on? One of the things our culture, I think, often teaches people is to be self-reliant, to be dependent on yourself, to pull yourself up by your bootstraps. And on one hand, that's, that's an okay thing. But on the other hand, if we're Jesus followers, we recognize that that, at the most basic level, can't be true. Because we couldn't create ourselves, we don't sustain ourselves, God does that, and he's died for us. And when we pray, we show God our dependence on him. In the early church, you know, they didn't have a lot of earthly possessions or resources, but they had their heavenly resource in their Savior. And think about how God used them to change the world. They weren't dependent on themselves, they were dependent on their God. And so I want us to just process that today. Are we dependent on our God, or are we simply self-dependent? This is something I can struggle with. It's so easy to just look at myself and say, you know what, I can do this. I can work hard enough. I can be good enough. I can do this. It's much better to say, you know what, God's using me. He's working through me. He's giving me strengths and abilities. I need to live faithfully, but at the end of the day, I still need to depend on him. So that's what the early church was devoted to, these four things. The apostles' teaching, koinonia, fellowship together, the Lord's Supper, the communion of the bread and the cup, Jesus, their Lord and Savior, and then lastly, prayer. And the last verse of this, I think, shows how when they were devoted to all these things, what happened. As they pursued these things, verse 47, the last part says this, and the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. It could be easy to read that verse and simply think, well, God is only, God's the only one who brings people, who saves people. And that's true. He's the only one who can save us. But this doesn't mean that God wasn't working through his people. We've already looked at, they were committed to meeting together in the temple. They were out about, they were in public. They were depending on their God. And the first part of 47 says they're praising God and they're enjoying the favor of all the people. Meaning like the people around them, the non-Christians saw them and they were like, wow. Look at what they're doing. They're, they saw the way they loved each other, their, their generosity, their koinonia together. They saw the way that they were committed to Jesus. And it, they had a positive impression on the world around them. And I believe God worked through that to evangelize the people around them. And God then added to their numbers daily. And so for us as Jesus followers, as we pursue devotion to these things, we also need to remember that God wants to use us to reach the world around us. We're not simply pursuing truth, pursuing fellowship together for the sake of just ourselves. It's also so then God can use us to reach the world around us. All right, I just want to summarize these things in using an illustration. All right, it's called the wheel illustration. Now, you might be familiar with this. Uh, if you ever heard of the Navigators Ministry, they use a wheel like this. Uh, I've adapted it just slightly. They use the wheel to describe the life of, of a single believer. All right, and the idea is that you take a wagon wheel, a bicycle wheel, and when it starts to turn, all right, the thing you see most prominent is the hub, the center part. You also then see the outer part, and the spokes kind of get blurred. All right? It's this idea of as you follow Jesus, as you do these things, people may not see all of those things, but what they'll eventually see is Christ in you and your obedience, your devotion to him. So I took it, kind of adapted it for us as a church. The early church, they were the outer part of the wheel. They were devoted. They were committed. 
They weren't just present. They weren't just passive. They were pursuing it together. And we saw that they were um, devoted to the word or to the apostles' teaching. That's on the vertical spokes, which in this illustration, the vertical spokes represent our relationship with God and the horizontal spokes represent our relationship with the people around us. So they're devoted to the word, to the apostles' teaching. We saw uh, they're devoted to fellowship. We saw that they are devoted to the Lord's Supper, to communion, bread, and cup, to the centrality of Jesus Christ, that hub. They're devoted to prayer. And ultimately, they had this sense of witnessing, of evangelism. God was working through them. And so I think these are the things we see happening in the early church that aren't just descriptive of what they did. They're prescriptive for us today as well. Another way we could say this, there's a a series of just statements of what the believers weren't and what they were. And this is, these are those statements, all right? It says, the believers, they weren't passively watching and said they were actively pursuing. The believers weren't self-focused and said they were Christ-focused. The believers weren't self-dependent and said they relied on God. The believers weren't individualistic, instead they were communal. The believers didn't have a scarcity mindset, instead they gave generously. Remember, they were selling things to help those in need. And the believers didn't shut out the world, instead they reached out with love and truth. This is the vision for us as a church. That wheel illustration, these statements, like this is the type of church the early church was, and I believe is prescriptive for us too. This is what we should be reaching for. This is a beautiful vision of working together for Jesus Christ, of being on mission for him, worshiping him first and foremost, saying, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to humble myself, put aside some of my preferences and opinions, and I'm going to choose to stand on the truth, and I'm going to work together to reach the world around me for Jesus. This is a high and lofty vision. It's beautiful and it's amazing, but it's going to leak out of us. That's why we need to keep coming back to this vision. Because if you're a Jesus follower, you have a part to play in this. You have a part to be devoted to these things because that's what the early church was devoted to. And not just in Acts 2, we see that throughout the rest of the New Testament. So if we can go back to the wheel illustration, I'm going to invite the band to come up. And they're going to start just playing in the background. I know this is a lot of information. What I hope today is that we get this vision of what the church was like, because over the next couple of weeks, Pastor Corey's going to be sharing about some different things, highlighting some of these things and some different ones, and zooming in on how we can live out being the church together and what that looks like. And I hope as we enter into these conversations over the next couple of weeks that this vision for the church sticks with you. And I hope that you realize that this is a good thing to pursue. When I said the word church at the beginning, what came into your mind? Maybe for some of you, it was the church is judgmental. The church is stuffy. The church is, it's boring. The church is dying. The church is whatever. Maybe it was a negative vision in your head. I want you to see that that's not what Jesus intended it to be. The church family, we have a part to play in this. And so what I want us to do as the band plays, I want you to think about this wheel illustration. I don't know if you've heard the saying, the squeaky wheel gets the grease. Sometimes people say that and they use it in a a bad way. What I want you to think about is, you know, we're all squeaky wheels because we're not perfect. We're not Jesus. We're not perfect. But what would it look like if each squeaky wheel in this room, myself included, what if we picked one part of this wheel to put some grease to over the next couple weeks or month? 
Wouldn't that vision of the church get a little closer? Like what if all of us who have the squeakiest part is prayer, what if we put some grease into that? And putting grease to it doesn't mean I just acknowledge, yeah, I need to work on that. No, putting grease on a squeaking wheel takes time. You gotta buy the grease. You gotta get the wheel out. You gotta bend down. You gotta put the grease in. This is us being committed to this. What if we greased up that prayer life? What about getting into the truth of God's word? Being in fellowship together. What if for some of us it's, hey, I need to be witnessing to the people around me. What if each of us just leaned in and greased up one part of our squeaky wheel? Wouldn't that vision get a little closer? Wouldn't Jesus be really glorified through that? I think so. And if you're here today and maybe you're like, you know what, I'm not a Jesus follower. I want to encourage you to focus on that hub. I want to challenge you. What would it look like to put some grease to that? I'm not saying you're, you're diving in, you're committed to following Jesus. I'm saying if you're not a Jesus follower and you're just asking the questions, why not grease that up for a little bit? Why not spend the next month asking the questions, having the conversations, pursuing who this God is? At the end of the day, what's it gonna hurt? I just wanna challenge you in that. And for all of us as Jesus followers, I hope that this is challenging, but I hope it's also exciting to think that this is who we can be, who we get to be together. It's gonna be hard, but it's gonna be amazing when we put Jesus at the center and we follow him. Take a minute and just think about this and then I'm gonna pray and the band's gonna lead us in one more song. passage and being honest sometimes it can be really just hard because I know that my wheel is squeaky in every aspect that I often live selfishly and don't keep you at the center and I don't depend on you like I should and I live for my opinions rather than your truth and and what we all can struggle with this but help us to not get down. Help us to see this as an amazing opportunity. Lord, you've already died. You've already risen. We got your grace. We don't need to live with the burden of trying to prove ourselves to you because you've accepted us out of your love by faith alone. And might that be a springboard for us then to say, you know what? Let's pursue this. Let's do this together. And Jesus, I pray and ask that you will be glorified in our church and in our community. Help those who need to grease up the different parts of this this wheel, whether it be diving into your word or praying or fellowship or witnessing. Give us strength and tenacity to pursue those things. Give us very practical steps on what we can do and help us to lean on you. Thank you for being our God, for loving us first and foremost. In your holy name I pray, amen.